So good afternoon. It's a pleasure for me to uh, welcome uh, Adam Hackett. Uh, Adam uh, did a PhD at uh, Limerick uh, in, in 2011, and uh, then he, since then he's been um, here as an ERCSET postdoc working as part of IBM's Exascale Computing Collaboratory, and he's going to tell us about complex dynamics on, sorry, cascade dynamics on complex networks. Okay. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about the work that I did during my PhD, which was uh, related to cascade dynamics and complex networks, deriving uh, theoretical results for the cascade, expected cascade size and the cascade threshold and binary state dynamics and complex networks. So I'll explain those terms as we, as we get into it a bit more. So I'm going to start with uh, preliminaries, just uh, basic terms that you'll need as we progress. So I'm not going to assume any uh, prior knowledge. I'm going to start from the very beginning with what I mean by a network. So a network is a collection of vertices, nodes, connected together by edges, also called links or bonds. Yeah, in sociology, vertices sometimes referred to as a agents. So label n, n vertices labeled i from 1 to n, and edges connecting th these, um, these vertices labeled ij. I'm going to be talking about uh, undirected, unweighted edges. So ij and ji will be the same, same edge. Right? There is no orientation to the edges I'm going to be talking about for the most part. So examples, uh, well, the most easily identifiable example uh, Nowadays, of course, is the uh, World Wide Web and Internet. We also refer to things like uh, social networks and networks of neurons in the brain have also more recently been studied by, uh, by uh, complex people who are interested in complex networks. So another, th another term that we'll need is uh, the degree of a vertex. So the degree just refers to the number of edges incident to the vertex. Degree of vertex I is the number of edges incident to i, so the number of direct neighbors of i. So if you've got a vertex, three direct neighbors connected by three individual uh, edges, you've got a degree tree vertex. The degree distribution prescribes the probability that if I have a random graph and I select the vertex at random, the probability that vertex will have degree k is given by the probability pk. So it's a fundamental descriptor of the topology of the graph the degree distribution, right? Yeah, for the most part, we're, we're, we, um, when we do our simulations and our theory, we're talking about uh, random graphs constructed by the configuration model, where you prescribe a degree distribution, then you draw a degree sequence, prescribing the number of edges per node. You, you attach half edges stubs of edges, two nodes, and then you randomly connect them. And in the n to infinity limit, well, as n grows larger, you, the theory says that you should end up with something that gets closer and closer to the desired degree distribution. Right, so I'll talk a bit about more, th a bit more about that later. Um, so an example, one of the primary examples that we use is a Poisson random graph or Ardashreni random graph. So the idea is you've got a collection of vertices. 
you, visit, you consider each pair of vertices and you, you connect the, those, that pair of vertices with probability p. And in the limit of large m, the theory tells us that we should end up with something that, that has a Poisson degree distribution. Right? So Poisson degree distribution with uh, mean z, so k times pk, some overall values of k. That's an example of what it looks like, right? So it's a sort of a homogeneous, oh, well, relatively homogeneous um, uh, sort of structure where the mean degree gives you a uh, gives you a strong insight into the the general properties of the topology. In contrast to that, what you see in a lot of um, empirically empirically observed networks, real networks is that they quite often have uh, scale-free degree distributions where the, um, where the uh, degree distribution is described more accurately by a power law. So what this means is that you've got a sort of 80-20 sort of Pareto type behavior where you've got very many vertices with a low number, with a low degree, and a small, relatively small um, condensed a cluster of vertices of a very high degree. So what you have there is the is a strong heterogeneity, where the um, where the mean degree is not a very good descriptor of the overall topology, right? So it's called scale-free because you've got this power law form, and if I um, multiply for if, for example, if I were to multiply this by a constant here, I would still maintain the same sort of. Um, form for the degree distribution, so there isn't an easily identifiable scale once you recognize that it's got this parallel form. So, so the reason you see this straight line here is because if you plot this on log-log, you've got this slope minus alpha, so here you see the slope minus alpha. So what people do when they're measuring, when they're trying to identify these parallels, you plot the thing on, on the log-log and you try to see if it's got a straight line. So there are a lot of results there's a sort of explosion in results around 1999-2000, saying uh, where it just seemed like everything had a power law. But that's kind of been thrown into... Um, there's sort of been doubts raised about that more recently. Where, uh, you know, in fact, people were claiming that there were, these were power laws in a lot of cases, but they're actually not quite the straight line that, that, you, that you really need to see. So here's a subset of the World Wide Web. This is a subset of 300,000 vertices, I think, um, on the... Um, Can I ask, how those are, because those vertices are selected, right? Because you did believe it was a parallel of your sampling of such a network. We'll bias the way you Yeah. And I think, in fact, you know, there's some work done, and there's more than there's certain sampling processes to use the networks that definitely generate automatically yeah, and uh, yeah, as I say, in a lot of cases, some of these have been, there's been doubt cast on whether they really are truly parallels. So there's a sense in which um, the more you want to see a parallel, the more you actually see them. <laughs> so, um, between two and three was the number that came up a lot. So it's still, it's not long, right? Oh, no, it is, right, because you said the probability for the tail probability. Uh, yeah. Between two and three, it's not just that 
but if I was worried about the, the probability of being bigger than a K, that exponent would be between one or two, which would mean finite mean and then infinite variance. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but so these are these are just some results just to highlight the type of things that are seen. Uh, this is an example of a subset of the World Wide Web, subset of the Internet at autonomous systems level. And there you see that's kind of deviating slightly as well, but we'll say that that's parallel too. Um, so that's protein-protein interactions in a yeast called S. cerevisiae. What's, what's on the X and the Y axis? So the X is okay. What's on the X? I'm not quite sure, to be honest. This is just, these are reported in Newman's um, Siam Review paper, Mark Newman's Siam Review paper from all three. So um, these are somehow related to, to uh, I couldn't honestly say what the what the degree what what the axes relate to, but the details are described in um, this review paper by Newman. Basically, what I'm trying to highlight is here is that. People report these parallels in all sorts of areas, right? So you've got this sort of scale-free picture for the network, whatever the network is that you're trying to describe. Okay, so that's that that that's uh, one property of uh, real networks. Um, another property, maybe possibly closely related, is this phenomena of uh, high clustering. So clustering relates to the um, propensity for small, co small collections of vertices to form closed interactions. So for example, if you consider a trio of vertices in a highly clustered network, it's highly probable that that trio will form a closed triangle of, of uh, connections. So this is something that you see in social networks. Social networks is called transitivity, where, it's, where you have this increased. So for example, if you've got two vertices and they each share a common friend, the likelihood that those two vertices will themselves also be friends by virtue of the fact that they share this common friend increases and it increases the level of clustering. So high clustering is something that you see is often reported in um, social networks, things like Facebook, Twitter, obviously. And, and it's actually sort of encouraged on Facebook where they where you get these suggestions so you, you both know this person, maybe you want to be friends with this person. So clustering is a very interesting thing to try to, try to um, describe the property of a real network as well. So the way that, so the way that people um, measure this thing is by looking at this thing called a clustering coefficient. So here's, there are a couple of different definitions. So here's one definition. A global measure, so you count the number of triangles in the graph and you, you multiply it by three and you divide by the number of connected triples of vertices. That's one way of telling you how likely it is that these trios will form closed triangles. 
Another alternative measure is this local measure where you measure the number of triangles uh, centered on a, on a single vertex and you look at all vertices i. If you then average that number over all vertices in the graph, you get a second global measure, which we call C2. And then there's this thing called a clustering spectrum, which we, we've, we um, looked at in our work, where um, you consider the set of vertices of degree k, and then for each k, you, 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 you average the local clustering coefficient of each vertex in that set. Right? So you get a, a clustering coefficient for each degree class in your degree distribution or in your degree sequence. So C, so for example, C2 tells you the probability or gives you a clustering coefficient for the vertices of degree two and so on. So those are just some preliminary sort of <coughs> definitions that are important for us. So just to move on to the idea of a cascade. So what we mean by cascade in very general terms is something that starts out small and ends up very large. So in society we have things, and there's a sort of ambiguity as to why they do that, right? Oftentimes they start out, start out very small and all of a sudden everybody seems to be adopting a certain behavior or maybe it's some sort of fashion or political trend or, or whatever. Also, infectious diseases can often be classified in this way. So outbreaks of diseases like swine flu, things like that. Oh, they just seem to come from nowhere. Well, obviously, people have analyzed these things, but we're going to think of them as cascades. Uh, technology, you've got things like uh, random f failures of, um, or cascading failures on um, things like power grids, like blackouts. And in um, finance, people have started to think of um, cascades of defaults, right? Where you have nodes representing balance sheets and edges representing dependencies between, so I, if I owe someone money or if they owe me money, that can represent an edge in the network. We've done some work on that as well, which I'll talk about later. Um, so the question is, how can we model these processes analytically? Uh, how does the structure, the structure that we just talked about, influence the graph dynamics? And um, so some things that we might be interested in are in our high degree vertices. How do they influence the spread of the cascade or hinder it? Uh, clustering, how, how does that um, help proliferate the cascade or does it in fact hinder the cascade? And also degree-degree correlations. So I, I've done some stuff on the influence of high degree vertices and spreading things like rumors and, and fashions. But um, I'm going to focus today just on the question of clustering, right? Okay, so I'm going I'm to start the um, discussion of cascades with just some background stuff. So percolation, Watts's model and an analytical approach that's been proposed for modeling these things. So the idea of percolation has been used to model things like resilience to random failure and targeted attacks. So random failure, really, you're talking about regular uniform site or bond percolation, where you prescribe this probability of selecting vertices. So with probability phi s, phi s, each vertex is present in our network. Alternatively, 
Another way to think about percolation, which makes it useful for thinking about um, resilience, is if you read the picture the other way. So if you give me a graph and I delete vertices, a probability 1 minus phi s, right? So a probability phi s, I create the network, I select the vertices that are going to be present. If you give me a graph, I'll delete each vertex with 1 minus phi s, and then I can start to think about resilience. When does the large connected component break down, and when does the when does the graph become disconnected? Right? Similarly, you can also talk about bond percolation, where the edges are what's under consideration. The edges are either present with probability phi b or deleted with probability phi s. So what we're interested in is, in, is the component structure of the graph that you end up with after running this percolation process. So there's a typical example of the type of phase transition that you see for um, site percolation. So this is what I call the giant connected component. So the giant connected component is the component of the graph that scales with the size of the graph as it diverges towards infinity. So as you increase the number of vertices, there's typically one component, if it's present, that will scale with the size of the graph, which we call the giant connected component. So the, and this can be related to the, the occupation probability that you prescribe. For low occupation probabilities, you, don't, you just have these disconnected small components. Once you hit this critical occupation probability, you start to see this growth of the giant connected components. And that will increase typically in this sort of fashion as you increase the um, occupation probability. So if you read this from right to left, you say, okay, we start, you know, from right to left, you start out, everything's nice and secure, everybody's got this giant connected component that there can be a part of where everybody's communicating to everyone else. But if you keep uh, reducing this thing, eventually you're going to hit this critical point and communication is just done for. You just got these small isolated components. So that's where the idea of application to resilience comes in. So that's one way that cascades are looked at. Another thing, another model that we've been we focused on is this thing called Watts's model. So what Watts's model allows you to do that percolation doesn't is it allows you to look more closely at the uh, local effects, the effect of one ver of the neighbors of a vertex on on a vertex itself, and how they influence the the spread of the cascade. So for example, if you take the example of a social uh, social system. You can think of vertices as people and an edge as some sort of acquaintanceship between those people, some sort of social relation. You prescribe a state of, of each individual as 0, 1, so it's a binary state dynamics. So 0 is uh, non-participation or non-activation. 1 means you're, you're in the cascade, you're fully full participant of this thing. So what's, you, what's uh, interesting about Watts's model is it allows, it allows you to prescribe a, tol a tolerance against the proliferation of the cascades. So each person has this individual tolerance where, where they say, okay, no, I'm not going to take part in this ca cascade unless the number of my neighbors exceeds this, this tolerance, right? So this gives you a better sort, it's more suited to things like the spread of uh, fashions and things like that or political trends where you've got this strong influence from the people around you determining whether you'll adopt the state, the state of um, 
being active in the cascade or not. So individual I will adopt state one only if the fraction of these neighbors exceeds the individual tolerance and you prescribe a distribution of these things. So the central idea is you start out all vertices in a, all, all vertices inactive, you prescribe a seed of active vertices, a small perturbation, so you prescribe a small number of active vertices and then you run this dynamics where you at each time step you say okay one will activate if the number of his neighbors active exceeds his um, threshold so there you have or sorry the fraction that's the number of his neighbors this is the fraction who are active at time t so adjacency matrix ij active neighbors some overall active neighbors and you repeat this until you reach a steady state. We can talk about the steady state without having to worry that it actually exists here because there's just one switch. You're either off or you're on. And when you're on, you stay on, right? There's a, so it's a monotone dynamics. There's also the idea of a non-monotone dynamics where you can switch back again, which we've started to look at more recently. I'll get to that, I'll get to that in the end. So for this talk, I'm just gonna be talking all about them monotone dynamics, just one switch. So you repeat that, that, this thing until you get to a steady state and then <clears throat> in the steady state, the number of active vertices, or the, the number of active vertices gives you a, the cascade size. And then we're gonna average this over many such, um, over many different runs, realizations and average average these numbers over many different realizations and compute a numerical average for the expected cascade size. So this is a numerical simulation scheme. And it's, the idea is it's gonna give you some insight. If you choose these parameters correctly, it gives you some sort of insight into what, into the behavior of things like um, fashions and the spread of rumors or trends. So that's the numerical scheme. Um, so, so the work is my supervisor from my PhD, Gleason, James Gleason. So what he had done previously was um, given an analytical theory, analytic, analytical description of cascades on um, locally tree-like random networks. So the idea is, so this is used to provide a theoretical match for the numerical simulations that you see with things like Watts' model although it's more general than that. So the basic idea is you start with a look, you assume a locally tree-like graph where you have no clustering. So you just have a strict branching structure from one vertex to the next. For example, if there is an edge here, you'd have clustering. So you don't have any edges across from one, from one vertex to another. That assumption of, locally, of a locally tree-like topology allows you to consider this level-by-level -level propagation of the cascade. So the idea is, if you want to find out, in, if you want to find out steady state active, fraction of active vertices, what you have to do is, or what you do is, you um, you calculate the probability that a randomly selected vertex will be active in the steady state, right? So for if you're in the steady state and you pick a vertex at random, and you try to see and you see if it's active, probability that it's active is equal to the steady state active fraction of vertices, right? The size of that final active component 
will give you the probability that you select a vertex at random. In that steady state configuration, you'll find it to be active. So the idea is select a vertex at random, and then like pull the network up and look at this top vertex and consider level by level propagation from the leaves up to this random random randomly selected root vertex. So you consider levels. The basic idea is to consider the the, pro the probability of activation of a randomly selected vertex on each level and work your way up to the root. The probability of activation then of the root will give you the expected cascade size. Uh, so you start with, uh, by defining the variable q and k to be the probability that a vertex of degree k on level n is active. You da so then we get onto this um, iterative scheme. So I'll try to go through this a bit more quickly. So you start with a, with a seed size. So the basic idea here for this scheme, this, so this is the probability of the vertex on the next level n plus 1 is active defined in terms of the probability that a vertex on the current level is active. The idea is that a vertex is either active by being selected as part of the seed, or it's not active in the seed, and it subsequently becomes active, which is prescribed as probability given by the G, the G uh, KQN function. This function, um, it captures the influence of the child vertices of the vertex on level n, whether these cause it to turn on or not. So I'll just return here. So the conditional probability, these are conditional probabilities prescribed in terms of the next vertex not being active, right? So it's the probability that this vertex on this level is active, conditional that this is not active, and then once you get to this level, you consider the same thing again, and you work your way up. This can become active if it's either part of the seed or not part of the seed, and it gets activated by these children on the level below. So that's what you see here. It's either part of the seed, not part of the seed, or activated by the child vertices below, on the level below on the tree. Each of those child vertices, since there's no cross-links, there's just a binomial probability that they're act each active with probability Qn. So m out of k minus one of these child vertices are active with probability prescribed by the binomial distribution with these individual probabilities for each vertex, qn. And then you've got this thing called the response function. So seed, not seed, m, children active, and then this final thing tells you whether that m is going to be enough. So this response function mechanism gives you some freedom in terms of the dynamics that you can describe. So this tells you whether that M is going to be enough to cause activation of the randomly selected vertex on level N. Um, so if you iterate that scheme up to the second highest level on the tree, the children of the root vertex, you get this probability Q infinity. And then you need to consider the probability of the root vertex itself. So it's the same type of idea. It's like the root vertex is either part of the seed or not part of the seed, and it becomes activated by the children below it. The difference here is that you've got k children below, this, below the seed rather than k minus 1 because it's got no parent. Also, for the averaging, you just consider p, pk. For the, in this case, because we had to take account of the parent, we had to consider k, k over z times pk. That prescribes the probability that if you follow 
a randomly chosen edge. At the end of that edge, you're going to hit a vertex of degree k. Right, so it, it relates it relates the um, the child vertex to its parent at all times for for doing the averaging over each level. But for the for the root vertex, you don't need that k over k over z p k. It's got no it's got no parent. So you just do p k for your averaging, and you do k rather than k minus one. Right. So that. That will be our expected cascade size, the probability of activation of that, of that root vertex. But what the um, response function mechanism allows you to do is it allows you to consider a number of different types of dynamics. By choosing an appropriate response function, you can look at site percolation, bond percolation, k-core decomposition, which is a type of percolation where you cut out um, vertices of degree below, below k. You can also look at SIR disease uh, transmission. The reason we can do that, by, by looking at these dynamics, I mean we can calculate the expected cascade size in these things. And in certain cases, we can calculate the, the cascade threshold. And we can also look at Watts's model. So Newman has shown that the, this final infect, the steady state infected fraction in, um, in SIR can be related to the bond percolation uh, joint connected component. So that's the reason why we can talk about this thing. So we can look at the, the um, cascade size, or expected cascade size in all of these things. Alternatively, the joint connected component, which is, translates as the same thing in Watts's model. So by the choice of, um, choice of response function, you look at these different dynamics. So for site percolation, your response function is this. For bond percolation, it's that. And for Watts's model, you look at the uh, cumulative distribution function of the thresholds. So for example, if you've got a uniform threshold across all vertices, so every vertex just has degree uh, threshold capital R, a delta spike at R, then you've got the unit step function. If you're below, if your fraction is below R, you're not on. M is not going to be sufficient. If the fraction is above R, M will be sufficient and it will cause activation. Right? So the response function tells you if that M, those M children on the level below are going to be sufficient to cause activation. Um, so I don't, I don't really have time to go into these in too much detail. So here's an example of the type of um, results that you get. So these, uh, these points are numerical results from the simulation described for Watts's model and the theory is our, is our theoretical match. The, sorry, the solid lines are a theoretical match. So I said that I looked at targeting high degree vertices. So these, so, these solid lines are um, when you pick the uh, seed at random. The dashed lines are the results that you get when you target vertices from the top 10% of the degree distribution. So I'm not going to go into any detail on this stuff, but I've, in my PhD work, I've done some work showing how you can approximate the effect of targeting high-degree vertices by choosing a larger seed. So just to illustrate in this example, the colors correspond to increase in seed size. So at red, you have 10 to the minus 3 seed vertices. You then increase to 5 by 10 to the minus 3 for the blue and then 10 to the minus 2 for the green. You can see that this shift from left to right with the 
increase in seed size, there's a similar, a similar effect is obtained by selecting higher degree vertices. So I've done some work on that as well. So that's just to illustrate the type of results that we get. Um, this is on a Poisson distributed um, random graph with a uniform uh, threshold. So that's just some background of the, of the modeling that we do in terms of dynamics. So the, so the question that we're really interested in, so these are all, as I said, uh, locally tree-like. The question that we're really interested in is what effect does clustering have? So you need some sort of uh, model for um, how to create clustered graphs, first of all. So this is, not, this is not my work. This is still all background work. So I'm going to just talk briefly about two models of creating um, graphs with clustering. So first of all, the edge triangle uh, graph model and then the clique best model. So I talked a bit about the configuration model. In this PRL paper from 2009, Mark Newman um, described how you can take the configuration model and generalize it to introduce uh, triangles rather than just single edges. So in the configuration model, you attach these single half-edge stubs. What he did was he, as well as prescribing single edges to each vertex, he also prescribed triangle edges. Right? So you, you designate certain pairs of triangles to be the two, two triangles forming, or sorry, two edges that will form edges of a triangle with, with, a, with, another, with another edge that it joins up to in the, in the assignment of uh, full edges when you attach these half edges. So um, what you end up with is a, or sorry, what, what you use to do that is a, is a joint degree distribution where you prescribe S and T. So S single edges and T vertices. You can still prescribe the traditional degree distribution by average in, in the correct way over this um, joint distribution. So that's an example of what it looks like. Um, so obviously it's not a, none of these models are going to be a complete description of what actual real clustering looks like. In particular, you can't have overlaps between edges in this. So for example, you can't have something like um, You call that a shared edge between two triangles. You can't have that in this model. These must be just a, a vertex, and then it's got this edge pair that is going to be joined up to, to two others. So it excludes, it excludes the possibility of what we call overlapping triangles. So that's a, uh, that's a close-up of what the structure of these things look like. So that's one model. And that, that property is going to allow us to describe dynamics with our level-by-level level scheme. So you'll see how that happens in a sec. Um, another model proposed by Gleason was this uh, uh, clique-based clustering. So the idea here is you, um, so in Newman's model, you just add triangles. This is a, a further generalization where you add a distribution of clique sizes. So I guess the easiest. So I, Here's the setup for the configuration model. You've got these stubs of edges, and you connect them, and you get your, you get your, um, you get your network with your prescribed degree distribution. The difference here is that these vertices correspond to cliques, right? So you consider the cliques as sort of super nodes in the configuration model, 
and then you connect these external links that connect outside of the clique together. Then you decompose those super nodes into, into the cliques of the whatever size you want with these internal edges. And then you've got your, um, once you do that decomposition, you've got your, but depending on how you've described the, um, the clique distribution, you get this thing called, that we call a gamma KC graph. So again, a joint, a joint distribution where you've got K for the degree and you've got C as the clique size. The joint probabilities will fully um, prescribe the structure of this thing. So there's three steps. I actually should have gone the other way. You start with your super nodes, you connect and decompose them, and you end up with this type of thing. You can also, again here, if you just sum over the K, you get the, de you get the degree distribution. Or sorry, sum over the C and the joint probability, you get the um, traditional degree distribution. So that's two classes of highly clustered random graphs. And again, there's an um, idiosyncrasy to this thing in that each vertex can only be a, can only be a member of one clique. Right, so again, this is a trait that we're going, which kind of reduces the um, the uh, it, it, it reduces its um, similarity to real networks, but it makes it easier to analyze theoretically. So some applications and extensions. So what I've done is I've I've taken that original. Um, analytical approach on tree-like networks, and I've used it to describe cascades on, on these two classes of clustered networks. So this is the, the bulk of my PhD work. So starting with the edge triangle class. So what is the difference here for these, these clustered networks? Before we just had this, this thing of child vertices, uh, sorry, child vertex, parent vertex with a single edge connection and then this, this vertex will be connected by those below it in the tree. The difference this time is that we've also got this triangle structure to consider. So you can still do the, you can still do the level by level thing where you just select a vertex and look at connections from one level to the next because you've got this thing of the, the, um, the, uh, uh, non-overlapping triangles. So what it allows you to do is you have this thing where you just have single edges and you've then got a triangle in there somewhere. You can still do about the level by level thing, right? To consider the probability of activation of, of this guy conditional on this being inactive. So the only difference is I've got to consider the probabilities of activation of these, these child vertices in the triangle and how they influence each other. Um, so the way I do it is to set up these uh, probabilities for these children. These child births, I need to consider the probability of this guy activating and also of these two activating. So you let sigma, sigma 1 be the probability that the child at the end of a single edge becomes active. Sigma, or sorry, tau 1 and tau 2 will be the probabilities that you have 1 child at the base of a triangle active, sorry, tau 1 will be the probability of one child at the base of, of a triangle active, tau 2 will be the probability of two children at the base of a triangle active. You relate these things to each other using generating functions. So sigma 0 will be the probability, the conditional probability that the single edge child is not active 
and the triangle probabilities are related to each other with, a, with another generator function tau x. Um, each vertex directly connected. Okay, so the way I've presented it here is, is, is as if these things are disconnected from each other, but by definition in the PST graph, these things are, so these parent, so for example, those two parents may actually be the same parent, right? So each vertex is going to have a, a number of prescribed single edges and also a number of triangles. So those two generating functions need to be um, related to each other because they're, they're both going to influence a, possibly influence a single parent vertex. The way you do that is to prescribe a third generating function. So using the powers properties of generating functions, if we call the, uh, the probability that m vertices of a randomly selected PST graph vertex are active, sorry, m, m neighbors, children specifically, um, m of m out of m of his, um, so s and t, so s single edges, t triangles, right? m of those s plus 2t um, neighbors, m of those are active with this probability pi m s t. It's kind of awkward here. I should have probably just put m out of s plus 2t rather than s comma t. But either way, this is the probability that m of those vertices here are going to be active. This is also prescribed in the generating function in powers of m. And it's simply related to the, those two other generating functions by this powers property. That allows us to, to apply the same, same level by level scheme. Right, so we've now got this relation between those two probabilities, and we can go and do our level by level scheme again. So what we need to consider is the probability, so I've said uh, the probability that this guy is active, one of these, or two of these. So sigma one, same type of idea as before, it's either in the seed or it's not in the seed, or it becomes active. This thing now takes the place of that original k over z pk. This is the average number of single edges per vertex. So the probability, <coughs> pro oh, sorry. so that's the prob uh, so that takes the place of that original k over z pk with the relation to the parent in the original tree-like graph. Um, and this is the probability that s minus one single edges and two t triangle vertices, sorry, s single edge vertices and 2t triangle edge vertices on the lower level will cause activation of this of this vertex sigma 1 on level n. And our response function again is here on the left so I've dropped the um, number of neighbors just for just to keep it short so I'm just saying this actually is m out of s plus 2t right so I'm just calling it fm from now on just to keep it just to fit everything on the page really. Um, so that prescribes the probability that that single edge child here is going to be active. We also need to consider those two edges at the base of the triangle. So what's interesting about the, these vertices is that they can influence each other's states. So it's not just the influence from one level to the next anymore. It's, it's simple in the case, in the sense that we only have to consider this pair of probabilities because you only have um, one or sorry, non-overlapping triangles vertex. So you consider tau 1 and tau 2, probably that 1 is active or 2 is active. 
they're expressed in terms of these probabilities, alpha, gamma, and beta. Um, so alpha will give you the probability. So again, you consider that you need to take account of the fact that they influence each other. So alpha will be the probability that one of those triangles activates uh, regardless of the state of the other, right? We'll call alpha the probability that one base triangle base vertex activate will not active. Oh, how do I word this? <laughs> that one child is inactive if the other is inactive, but will activate if the other is active, right? So it remains inactive. So if we're, we're here at the base of the triangle, one of these vertices, it needs to see this guy active before it will activate itself. And you can switch these. Right? So those, those two probabilities give us what we need to prescribe the probability that either one or two are active. So the way you combine those two probabilities, you get one active if one, you get one active vertex at the base of a triangle if with probability alpha, one activates regardless of the other state and the other stays, or sorry, gamma is one minus these two things, which will tell you the probability that each other is inactive uh, even if the other is active, right? So one is active regardless of the other state, the other is inactive regardless of the other states, and you can switch those. So you've got two different ways to get one active at the base of the triangle. For two active at the base of the triangle, there are two different ways. Well, in fact, three. So you got two of them, alpha squared, both being active regardless of each other's states, or you can have one active regardless of the other states, and the other becoming active because of that, would probably beta, and you can flip that relation so that it's the other way around, right? So this guy activates, and that guy activates because of that. So these are all the different ways that you can get two active at the base of a triangle. So these are now our level-by-level level, um, probabilities. So you iterate those things to find a steady state probabilities, or steady state values of each of these probabilities, sigma 1, tau 1, tau 2. You then take those steady state values and plug them into the final probability for the activation of the root vertex, and that will prescribe the probability that the that the, um, or sorry, the expected cascade size. It prescribes the probability that the root vertex is active in the steady state, which corresponds to the expected cascade size. So that's the expected cascade size. What we can also do in this case is, or what I have done, is prescribe a um, first order cascade condition. So this looks like a terrible mess here, right? But the thing to remember about this is these are all generalized response functions. F1, the probability that one neighbor enough is enough to activate you, that two is enough to activate you. So what you have here is a cascade condition for all of the dynamics that I talked about earlier. So this, this contains bond percolation, side percolation, Watts's model, SIR, all in this one expression, depending on how you choose F1 and F2, right? And you can and we've reduced these things down by plugging them in and comparing them to previously published results. So the way you do that is to linear. I don't have time to talk about it. The way you do it is to linear linearize that original generating function, g of x, and it reduces to a two. But and the iteration scheme reduces to like an axb type thing, where you've got a two by two matrix and you look at the uh, largest eigenvalue, see if it's. Uh, uh, what is it, larger than one, and it corresponds to this condition greater than zero.
for this. Um, this is related to the determinant of that of that um, that matrix. Uh, I don't have time to. So we can. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm going to skip this bit. So we can also talk about the effects of clustering. In the case of, uh, if you reduce to the Z regular case, you get a simplification of the degree distribution, or sorry, the joint distribution, and you can look at the effects of clustering. So one thing that I've found is that in bond percolation and site percolation, the critical occupation probability is also is always um, uh, increased, meaning the cascade size is always decreased relative to its original value by increasing clustering. So if you add more triangles, you're always going to you're always going to um, increase the critical occupation probability in site and bond percolation for PST graphs. For Watts's model, and it's related to this expression in F2. For Watts's model, you get a more complicated behavior. For example, on a tree regular graph, clustering, so G1 increases, so the G value here is increasing clustering. G equal to zero is the zero clustered value. And then you increase to fully clustered at, at G equal to one. At set equal to tree, clustering reduces the cascade size. However, at different values of z, z equal to 5, for example, clustering may actually increase the cascade size. So that's my, there's a more ambiguous sort of behavior for Watts's model. In sight and bond percolation, it's clear-cut. I can, dis, I can I'm, I'm certain that it always, it always reduces the, the threshold. Or sorry, did I say reduce? It always um, uh, increases the threshold, reducing the cascade size. For Watts's model, there's a more ambiguous behavior which needs to be looked in at a bit more. So that's uh, edge triangle graphs. I just want to talk briefly about the work on clique based graphs. So for the clique based graphs, remember what you have is a spectrum of clustering sizes. So you don't have a triangle anymore. So all that, all that stuff about uh, the relation between the two vertices at the base of a triangle that now becomes the relation between C minus, C1, C minus 1 vertices at the base of a clique, if you like. And I can make this clique any size that I want. So, it, so it become, you can imagine how messy the combinations become. But I've, I've managed to um, get a general formula for this, for the, prob the probability, or sorry, the influence of these vertices on each other. So for a, a similar scheme can be applied, level by level scheme. You've got the external edges, the single edges extending from one level to another. And the way that you do it, the way that you apply your level by level scheme is you tuck these um, clique neighbors into a, an intermediate level of the tree. This is the way that we conceptualize it. Just sort of force it into our level by level scheme for counting the, the probability of activation. So we want to look at the probability of activation of this guy, say, for example, conditional on the guy at the next level is inactive. So we'll need to consider the influence of these external edges, which will just be done in, this, in the usual manner, just a single edge, no cross edges. So these are just binomial probabilities. And then we need to count, need to count the, um, consider the, the influence of these guys on each other how these guys influence, also how the influence extends a, a, 
around the clique and then how that will determine the probability of activation of this guy up here. So the, so the influence comes from these, these three and these two, but these three are kind of, that's where the main work comes in. Okay, so C minus one clique neighbors, K minus C plus one external edges, one extending up to the parent, K minus C extending down to level N. In this case, um, you've got K equal to six and C equal to four. This is a four clique here with three on the intermediate tree, C minus one vertices on the intermediate level and <coughs> K minus C equal to two uh, external neighbors on level N. Um, so those external neighbors are just active with, just prescribed by a binomial probability. So each is active with probability Qn and you get J of them active with a binomial probability of um, J out of K minus C, right? That's, so I'm just going to call this um, the probability, the influence that comes from the clique neighbors, I'm just going to give this a label for the time being. So the probability that m of those c minus 1 are on is just going to be called r. And that stuff of the considering the probability that the child is the parent, or sorry, that at the end of that parent-child relation, you've got a vertex of degree k. That's going to be, so in the original tree-based scheme, it was k over zpk. In this scheme, or sorry, in this um, class of graphs, that relation becomes this psi kc thing, All right? So it's just a matter of translating these probabilities into the new class of graphs each time. This, the basic structure stays the same. So the probability that a vertex on the next size level, n plus one is active, it's either in the seed, it's not in the seed, and it becomes active with this probability here. The influence of the external children, the influence of the children inside of the clique and f the response function telling us whether the combination of those two things is going to be sufficient to cause activation. If you iterate that thing to the steady state, you get q infinity, you plug it in. Remember these are functions of q so you plug it into both of these and then you calculate the probability of activation of the root vertex which corresponds to our expected cascade size. So for the, okay, so that's, that's um, that all looks nice and it all works, but we're still left with the problem of figuring out what R is. So that's a problem in its own right, which is, act, which, um, is the main bulk of the, of the, it's the main source of difficulty in deriving this, this theory. So what you do first of all, prescribe this probability, call it G. It's the probability that those intermediate, if, if D of, uh, if, uh, if you consider the intermediate clique neighbors, the probability that D of, the, of a clique neighbor's vertices being active is going to be sufficient to activate it, given that its own children are each active with probability Qn. That's prescribed by G. So return into the picture. If you consider um, this vertex here, for example, given the fact that this guy is pro active with probability Qn. What is the probability that these, t these two, one of them or zero of them or two of them being active is going to be sufficient to cause activation of this guy? So that's prescribed by this probability G. 
that allows you to consider the, every possible active vertex configuration inside of the clique. So the way I've done it is to consider, I just counted them, basically. I've counted all of the, I've done it for two, three, and four, and then sort of extrapolated. So this is where the kind of, this is not published yet, so this needs a bit of work, but I'm fairly certain that it works. Consider the two case. So you can start out with, so, so if you've got C minus one equal to two vertices on the intermediate level, you start out with non-active. You can transition from non-active to, and stay out with non-active with probability um, uh, G0, sorry, G0 will be the probability that a vertex act activates if none of its neighbors in the clique are active. So none of these have probability G0 of being active. So, by, so the B is the binomial function, right? So zero out of two have this probability G0 prescribed to them. That will leave you with, with non-active. If one, of those, one out of those two vertices has this probability G0, in other words, if it will active without the other vertex being active, if it doesn't need any vertices active in the clique in order to activate itself, just the influence of its own children, then you'll end up with one active. If you've got two vertices that require no clique neighbors to be active, then you'll end up with two right off, right out of the, um, in the first transition. So some of, the, some of these states are, are fixed, are terminal states, while others are volatile, they're liable to change again. So these two cannot change, right? So we've established, if you're in that state, you've established that neither of those vertices will activate without some influence from, a, from another one of the clique neighbors. Neither of them are active, neither of them are liable to become active, so this is, this is fixed here. Also in this state, they're both on, they can't switch back off, so this is a fixed state. This one, however, is not a fixed state. We've established that that guy will activate without any influence from its clique neighbors. However, all you've established for this guy is that zero is not enough to activate him, but it's possible that this one now being active, that will cause activation in the subsequent round. So you, so you need to consider the probability of, of this guy now becoming active. So the next round of uh, activation, you consider the transition from B to a subsequent state. So you can go from here to here if one, if one is still not enough, and you can go from, from here to two active if one is enough. This probability xi um, prescribes the probability that zero, if zero wasn't enough, one will be enough. So it's given by this function here. So given, so zero, if A is zero, B is one here. Given that zero wasn't enough, is B enough? Normalized by the probability that <coughs> zero wasn't enough. That, that prescribes the probability of activation, of ending up in this state. So what you do, what I do from this uh, picture is I count the states. I count the different ways that you can end up with zero, one, or two. You end up with zero active if you go from X to A, you, if you go from X to A. You end up with um, one active if you go from X to B and then from B to D. You end up with two active in two different ways if you go directly from X to state C or if you go from state X to state B to state uh, E. So two different ways for two active. So the, way, the scheme that I, 
that I worked through, that I developed for counting these things, is to just draw pictures like this and just count the different states that you can that you can achieve. And this will give this will give me my R functions. So zero out of two, you combine those binomial probabilities with that G function. That's a probability of zero out of two. One out of two, again, just count the states in that diagram. Express it in terms of, of the binomial function with the, G, with the G in there. And then you can draw it out entirely in terms of G. And then for two out of two, express it in terms of the binomials and this thing down here. And then you can write that entirely in terms of those G functions as well. So that's just one case where you've got two on the intermediate level which of course is just a basic triangle, similar to the PST model. But we want something more general than that. Uh, so I'll just finish it up. So what I've done is to um, consider the tree case. I did a similar thing. The only difference is they had triangles here, much longer list of different states that could be considered. I got a list of probabilities like that. And then I sort of just um, no real uh, reasoning, proper um, sort of proof or anything. I just sort of looked at these things and said, okay, what function is going to give me all of those probabilities in one go? Which function is going to give me 0, 1, and 2 out of 2? What function is going to give me 0, 1, and 3 out of 3? I found that if I, if I look at these, th if I s consider the probability of that, or sorry, if I count the number that are active in the first state and the second state and the, and the first transition, the second transition, and the third transition, then I can derive, I can write down these func this uh, function that will give me all of those probabilities given here. So L1 is the number that, number that are active after that first round, I1. L2 is the number that are active that are subsequently become active in the second round, I2. I found that you can get all of those probabilities out by this function here. This is a multinomial coefficient. Similarly for, for tree, I found that this function will give me all of the probabilities that I want for the case of tree intermediate vertices. And more generally, just sort of just plug it, so I took a step of assuming, okay, I looked at the structure of this and said, okay, maybe here's what it looks like in the more general case. Will this work for, for um, z equal to five, six, seven, eight, etc.? Turns out it works. Why does it work? That needs to be tied down a bit more, I think. So the general formal work of this equation will give you all of the probabilities that you want for the general case of V intermediate clique vertices. And the really nice thing about it is if you use multinomial coefficients, it can actually be expressed in that, in that form. So incre incredibly concise form, which makes me think that there must be some sort of, some reasonable sort of proof of this thing, some sort of, um, some sort of induction that you can do to go from the general end case. But either way, I've, just by observing these things and trying to figure out what the general form of a function might be, I've observed that you can actually, that, that that function in that form will do what you want. So 
you plug that back into my equations from from here for the R, and that will give you the expected cascade size. And my proof that that works is just given by the match between theory and numerics, right? So there's numerical simulations. I've chosen the response function for bond percolation, the theory given by that R function, and the equation for the expected cascade size gives you this match between theory and numerics. So you've got a distribution of uh, clique sizes here. You've got cliques of size three, sorry, I say, cliques of size three, four, and five here, I think. They're prescribed by the beta, alpha and beta functions. If you also try Watts's model, you see that it works very well as well. So it gives you what you want. But it's, it's ongoing work. It needs to be tied down a bit better, I think. OK, so what I've done is provided, um, provided a theoretical match for Newman and Gleason's models of uh, clustering. Some open questions are that R function. How can we prove that that is the correct form? And also, can we extend to non-monotone dynamics? So the, those were looked at recently by Gleason, where he gave a model of the uh, SIR, SIS um, disease transmission dynamics. And another question is, can we generalize to more, um, more flexible um, clustering models, like those described by Kerr and Newman in this recent paper? So it's a further extension generalization of those two um, clustering models that I described. Okay, so that's just, just some people who, who contributed to the work and some publications. So that's it. That, yeah. That's the work on the, um, we, we applied it to financial networks as well. So that's that reference on the top there. Right, okay. I ask about, I mean, you're describing as a, sort of as a analytic results, right? But you're kind of doing, uh, you're assuming everything is independent from station, from station distribution. You, you know, like you don't remember when you, in your level by level probabilities, you don't remember that you decided this, this peak is on and this one's off. You know, you're not considering it as a stochastic process, you're considering it. No, I ju just considering the pair, the child parent pair. You, you, you average over level. You consider the... Yeah, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm acquiring... Probability of vertex chosen at random from a level is active. You, you just focus in on the one level to the next, and then once you've got up to the next level, you, you kind of forget about where you've been and calculate the probability for the next level until you reach the... Right, so I guess the thing I didn't get was that whether that's a completely accurate description or whether it's sort of assuming that looking at a single one is in some way representative of whatever we get that level, you know, which case it's kind of like, an, like you're doing a mean field thing rather than a, a full description. No, it's, it's definitely not a full description. I mean, for, for example, you, you, cannot, you can't use that theory to calculate, for example, the distribution of uh, uh, cluster sizes below the threshold. In particular, the result for the bond percolation and side percolation, that, that will only work with the response function mechanism in the, in the steady state. That only gives you the expected cascade size. It's not, it's not really a full 
description of the cascade dynamics. Rather, it's just it's essentially a means of calculating those particular properties, the expected cascade size and the, in certain cases, the first order um, cascade threshold. So I guess I was wondering whether there's any hope between literacy, say, using Kurtz's theorem from the 70s, or there's a lot of work on, you know, how um, can you approximate, uh, like, your system might be far too hard uh, to do to do a very little there's a nice review by Darlene and Norris uh, earlier in 2000 showing how you can show that those sort of limited dynamics when something is large and something else is small. <laughs> um, you know, they describe them. It's just, I'm just wondering because you're kind of describing it as a theory, but it's, it's kind of, it's not, it's, you know, it's not a rigorous description of the system. Yeah. Uh, so if n is very small, the, the approximation is yeah, when, when does the approximation work? Yeah, when n is small, the approximation does not work very well. It's for it's for the limiting case of n n So that's why we're showing times the vibes or something. Yeah, and in fact, um, you know, one of them I showed ten to the six, and it would, the transition was even better in that case. Um, so these are these are ten to the five. And then if you remember this one, the 10 to the 6, you can see you can see that discontinuous transition even better in that case. Can I ask if you, did you, were you tempted to do more simulations around that transition? Because you seem to capture it very beautifully, right? Or you boxes in the middle? Yeah, I guess, I mean, you could, but it's, it was sufficient for us just to say, okay, look, we can track this, this, this propagate, this, um, Expect a cascade size, and uh, we're, we're happy. We're we're happy that we we got that prediction correct. Thanks very much.